Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. I am your host, Al D, and the author of MBA Insider. This podcast is for career-driven professionals looking for advice on how to grow their careers by leveraging the skills, experiences, and knowledge gained from an MBA degree. In each episode, I'll give you a look into the business school experience, along with practical tips, career advice, and real-life stories to help professionals grow their careers. Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. My name is Al D. I'm the host of the MBA Insider Podcast and the founder of MBAschool.com. Uh, today, I'm excited because I have with me uh, Yanelle Selman, who is a co-founder and CEO of Cultivate. Uh, Yanelle is also a MBA alum from Berkeley Haas, and we're going to talk a little bit about her journey to entrepreneurship and founding uh, Cultivate. And I always love you know, bringing founders on to tell their stories, particularly those who do go to business school. And we're going to dig into Yanelle's. But before we do that, I always love starting with a warm-up question. And my warm-up question is, you know, what was your first job growing up? And what did you learn from that? Hey, Al, thanks so much for having me and really excited to be here and uh, to have the opportunity to share a little bit about the work that we're doing and yeah, the impact of the MBA. Um, and yeah, love this warm-up uh, question. So, oh, first job. Okay. I, when I was in high school, I was on my high school's dance team and our coach, um, connected us to some like babysitting opportunities. So probably that was my first job, which I'm sure many people, um, had similar first babysitting gigs. Um, but it was, it was a special one. I, I'd say I learned a lot. So my dance team coach was in, in addition to being an incredible leader, uh, for us, she was also married to Mike Lowell, who's a very famous baseball player. Um, he, yeah, he won a bunch of things and, um, yeah, he's, he's incredible. Uh, and so basically because of that, we got exposure to some super senior people. Like we were babysitting for, you know, folks from the Marlins, uh, some of the just wealthiest folks in Miami. So having grown up kind of low income in Miami, lower income. Um, it was such a big opportunity for me to get to go to some of these, you know, mansions and just get to see what that life is like. And, and it was really, it gave me quite a bit of perspective. Uh, but in addition to that, just really helped me understand, um, you know, how to manage relationships, I guess, with senior folks, like folks who I, I felt had a lot more power than I did and, and just resources than I did. So that was a key learning. Um, and then I guess the other key learning obviously was, just managing chaos. Um, I remember we would be brought in a lot of times to, um, you know, perform or just like manage big birthday parties. And so there was, you know, one birthday party, I remember it was 30, 30, you know, little girls, maybe like seven or eight years old. And there was this like pull apart cupcake cake situation that just made a disaster across the entire across the entire living room and I, I just remember like cleaning up frosting for hours and hours and hours while still trying to entertain 30 young girls um so just like getting yeah to understand how to yeah manage through chaos i felt uh was another great skill so definitely learned a lot from from that first job i love that i my first job was a little bit different I worked as a caddy at a golf course, but what I share in common in the sense of being able to work and be around people who were much different than me, but also at a much different stage in their life, uh, who were older, uh, just being able to have that exposure to that, I think 
paid a lot of dividends just in terms of not only understanding people who are different than you, but also just to exposing you to other expanding your aperture of, of what else is out there in life and, and, and yeah. whatnot. And I definitely credit that experience in so many ways to my ability today to be able to understand and really be thoughtful about trying to build relationships with people, particularly when they're maybe different than you or come from a different background and, and the like. And it started just, you know, being a 12 or 13 year old, you know, wondering what it was like to, um, or having to work and having to use customer skills with someone who was a doctor or a lawyer or a lawyer totally. or, or any other profession for that matter. Yeah. But that's, that's so cool that you were able to do that. And I lived in Boston for a while, so I very much know who Mike Lowell is. Uh, he is, <laughs> he is beloved in, in that hometown. So super, uh, super cool, super cool story. Okay. Yeah. Well, great. So talk to me a little bit about what were you doing prior to business school and why did you choose to get an MBA in the first place? Yeah. Um, so I, I think I, I've sort of meandered in my career across a, a bunch of different industries. I think um, the reason for that is, you know, growing up, I, I grew up in a big Cuban family. I was born and raised in Miami. Both of my parents were Cuban immigrants. Um, and then just getting to visit our family in Cuba growing up, I remember being really interested in information disparities and the ways that the information that my family in Cuba had compared to the information that I had just really created some very different worldviews and very different understandings of, you know, like what, what truth and knowledge are, right? So throughout my career, I sort of explored that question in various ways. When I was in high school, I was really interested in journalism and the news. Um, I went to undergrad at Northwestern. When I was there, I sort of got more and more esoteric. I was a philosophy major and like really trying to understand these like fundamental questions around, you know, how people uh, construct their worldviews. Uh, after that, I, I went into education. I, you know, right out of undergrad did Teach for America. I thought the education system was a really important place where we start to understand how systems and institutions work. Um, I taught in the Bay Area, so I was placed at a school in the city of Richmond, California, which is an incredible community, taught second grade bilingual, and it was very cool to see families who were also, you know, immigrant families coming to the U.S. with big dreams and the disappointment that the school system can often be, right? Like the school where I taught, 9% of the kids were reading on grade level. Um, that That whole experience really made me feel responsible to get more involved at the systems level. I felt like I had, you know, an understanding of policy. Uh, I wanted to use my understanding of what was going on in the classroom and with families to impact the education system. So I took a job in education policy where I was helping parents get involved in, you know, changing policy and politics. We worked on school board campaigns. We worked on funding campaigns. Uh, ended up working with about 3,000 families across uh, Northern California, ended up managing a team uh, in Oakland, San Jose, Richmond, and Sacramento. Super cool to get management experience at a pretty young age. And ultimately, at about 20, when I was 26, I felt, okay, I, I really want to kind of go back home to Miami. But there, and I wanted to do the same work, but there was nobody doing that work in Miami. There were no organizations. So that was my first sort of step into entrepreneurship, mostly out of necessity. I was like, I want to be home. I want to do the same work. I can either wait for somebody else to found something or I can just do it, right? 
Uh, I had some relationships with funders. So yeah, I ended up launching an organization called PS305, um, raised a bunch of money uh, from some pretty big foundations, Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, the Walton Family Foundation, ended up hiring a few folks and building out uh, an organization there. Uh, And ultimately, after about a year and a half, started feeling very intensive burnout. I think as a young social impact founder, I was sort of putting everything into this organization and not taking time to kind of recover from that. And so, you know, I started working with an executive coach after about another year was still sort of like moving further and further into the, the sort of cynical and hopeless stages of burnout and was like, I need, I need to, I need to, I need to take a break. And so that's what really led me to get an MBA. I was like, I want to take a couple years off work. I want to like really take a step back and understand um, what I'm interested in. And, and I wanted to get back to the Bay area and that led me to Berkeley. Thank you for sharing that. Definitely, I think I can see now just some of your past experience and how it might tie into what you're doing now. So we'll definitely dig into a little bit of that. I guess just as a, a follow-up, so coming into Berkeley, I know you mentioned uh, there are a couple of reasons why you thought it was a great idea to go and get your MBA. But obviously, when you're in business school, everyone kind of has opportunities to go pursue the thing that they want to pursue. Did you know going into school that you wanted to build a company or talk to me a little bit about some of the initial career ambitions that you had in terms of going to business school and using that MBA to to do something else. Yeah, it's so interesting. I think when I started business school, my orientation was more around, you know, so burnt out. And so I was like, how do I just get a nine to five, <laughs> you know, cultivate some hobbies and just like take it easy, right? Like, I just want to go into a job that's going to value me that's going to provide me some new skill and growth, but that ultimately is not going to be the center of my life. And that lasted for maybe a month. <laughs> I, I mean, Berkeley has such a strong entrepreneurship program and I had an entrepreneurship experience and I just felt so drawn to that community. Um, and because of my burnout experience, there was a problem that I was really interested in solving. And I feel like that's always the first step, right? Like you, you fall in love with the problem, not, you know, not any specific solution. And so I pretty, I think it was October of, you know, we started in in sort of late August and by October, I was already like in an entrepreneur, formal entrepreneurship program, working on this sort of concept um, that, you know, eventually went on to become Cultivate. Uh, But yeah, so it was sort of like a a thing where I was drawn toward it versus like a very intentional decision. Yeah, sure. And as you got into those entrepreneurship programs and really getting into the MBA program, what were the opportunities, the resources, the classes, which were most helpful into helping you figure out this thing that you wanted to build and that this thing that you wanted to start? I think there's different programs for different levels of sort of like where, how developed your startup is. Um, I had startup experience in the sense that I knew how to build a team. I knew how to raise money. I knew how to build an organization, but I was, you know, had never worked in the sort of for-profit sector. So I didn't understand sort of tech startups and I didn't understand all of the underlying kind of language. I didn't understand product development. Uh, so when I started, I, I sort of began with the very first um, program that is a sort of designed for concept stage startups, and that's called STEP. Uh, I don't know what the acronym stands for, but it's like your first step into entrepreneurship at Haas. Uh, amazing program, just eight weeks, but really kind of gave me the full picture of what it takes to develop 
a startup, a tech product, you know, I, I got a ton of great feedback from coaches and mentors. After that, we applied to a competitive course called Lean Launchpad, where, you know, Steve Blank, which is a very famous um, professor in the field of sort of like lean startups, which is a whole methodology, uh, designs a semester long applied innovation course where it's really hands on. And, you know, we recruited a team of four people to go through that course together you know, one engineer, somebody from the School of Information and Design, uh, and then two two of us from, from the MBA program. Uh, and so, yeah, then we did this sort of 13-week <laughs> intensive program throughout the, the spring semester, uh, learned how, you know, and, and really executed toward building an MVP, building a prototype, you know, launching something, getting feedback, digital marketing, like the whole thing to sort of pivot as fast as possible. Uh, and then after that, we applied to Skydeck and got into the hot desk program. Super helpful. Skydeck connected us to our first, you know, investor. And I think that was the the real turning point where we started getting traction. That was when we secured our pilot with Box, uh, which is a, a tech company in the Bay Area. And so we were really able to, to start kind of building our traction that led to more investors and more pilots, uh, which we were able to build upon. Uh, in addition to that, we got connected to so many advisors that were so critical for our growth. So Joe Wadkan, who's, you know, VP of sales, and he's a, he teaches startup sales at Berkeley, is one of our advisors. Uh, we've gotten to work with Dr. Sahara Youssef, who's the founder of Becoming Superhuman. She's a cognitive neuroscientist at Berkeley, researcher there. Uh, has, you know, done so much work on burnout herself. And yeah, the, you know, entrepreneurship professors, obviously, Kurt Beyer and the Lean Launchpad professors, Bill Pierce from Strategic Brand Management. So it's been incredible to just have such a, you know, a deep bench really supporting us. And then in addition to that, all of the the, ta the talent that we've been able to recruit, all of our engineers have, have sort of come from Berkeley's undergraduate or, or graduate uh, engineering programs, uh, UX designers from Berkeley, and then in a, you know obviously MBAs as well. So it's been it's been so helpful to be part of that community during the sort of infancy of Cultivate. Absolutely, I can see a lot of that as being super valuable, and maybe as a follow up to that. What is Cultivate? And did you know that this was the company that you wanted to start? Or did you figure that out through some of these programs and opportunities you know, while at Berkeley? So great question. Cultivate is a startup that is helping employers prevent burnout by connecting them to high quality time off experiences. So while we were at Berkeley, we did a ton of research it was, it was a great time to be thinking about burnout because in 2019, Christina Maslach, who's sort of the, the burnout, you know, founder of that term, she defined the term in the 1970s and has really been researching it for the last 50 years. She started, you know, she started talking about a new paradigm where instead of thinking about burnout as a medical issue and like impacting individuals, we started thinking about burnout as a managerial problem impacting organizations, right? And so those were some key shifts. Her book, The Truth About Burnout, kind of dives deep into that that shift in the field and in the thinking. And us as sort of managers had a ton of access to best practices and, and to be able to really dive deep and, and do some research on how do you prevent burnout, right? And so with that research and, you know, after about a year and a half at Berkeley, thinking about that problem and getting a ton of great advice, we came up and we developed this sort of framework called high quality time off. And it's really how organizations and companies can start 
empowering their employees to set boundaries between work time and non-work time so that employees can maximize their physiological resource recovery, right? So they can actually like reduce their stress biomarkers during the times that they're not working so that they come back sort of nourished, ready to go. Um, and that is um, really how we believe employees and employers are going to be able to achieve sustainable peak performance, right? Versus the sort of crash and burn that I think is pretty common now. I don't think we went into this sort of knowing that that was the, obviously like that was the solution. Uh, we started kind of early in our MBA journey. We knew we wanted to address this problem of burnout. Uh, we went through a ton of different solutions. Our you know first solution was really B2C, focused on end users. Then, you know, we did a ton of pivots, ended up focusing on B2B and really felt like we needed to work with employers if we were gonna achieve this, this kind of work culture change and the change in norms that we felt would actually address the systemic causes of burnout. Um, and then of course the research sort of like pointed us in the direction of like, hey, there's this huge missing piece. You know, a lot of people are thinking about how do you change how job demands are structured to address burnout, but not thinking about sort of like, how do you at an organizational level address work recovery, right? How do you go beyond self-care, which is like still putting the, the sort of onus on an individual to manage burnout, sometimes, you know, even giving them more and more tasks to do every day to manage their own burnout versus thinking about it organizationally, right? Like how do we restructure expectations uh, to sort of propel employees to, to proactively manage their burnout? I think that's great. And, you know, as you're talking, a couple of things that stand out, I mean, even just the idea of pivoting from B to C to B to B, I think from a, just a strategic level and what your company stands for, I think that is a huge move in the sense that yes, everyone should have some agency and self-control over how they manage themselves, but it really is getting to what I think you're suggesting, which is the heart of the issue in that, uh, the conditions that sometimes foster burnout are, are not something that is solved at the individual level. It has to be solved at the organization level, at the culture level, at the ways in which companies operate and work, which is much, much bigger than any one in individual itself. And, and every individual should feel empowered to take ownership in their own lives. But in, as, as a culture, as a company, it extends far beyond just any, any one individual. And so I thought that was interesting as you were talking about, you know, pivoting from, from B to C to B2B because input, I, I think it aligns very nicely with, I think the message that you're trying um, to talk about, right? In terms yeah. of the customers you're trying to reach. Totally, yeah. I think that's just such a key piece and so obvious and yet hasn't been addressed, right? It's like, you're way more likely to burn out if you work at one company compared to a different company. And it's so clear that like some of the, the current thinking and, and just sort of, you know, the ways that companies have been addressing sort of employee well-being have been failing. You know, we have so many companies, especially here in the Bay Area, tech companies, they're building massage centers, they have cafeterias, they're building housing on, you know, their campus, their tech campus. And the idea is like, hey, we want you to be working all day, every day. We want you to be at work. Like, we think that you're going to work more if you do that. And it's so misguided. The actual, that, that really 
what ends up happening is people have shorter and shorter stints, right? Because that's not sustainable. The one thing people can do to prevent burnout is actually proactively take time away from their work and get that emotional, cognitive, and physical distance from work. So we believe that this sort of expectation that people are always on, always connected, is what's leading to, you know, Mental Health America stat where 83% of U.S. employees are experiencing at least one symptom of burnout. So uh, unless something fundamental changes in that thinking, uh, we're going to continue to turn folks over at, you know, a really high rate. And that's going to cost, you know, U.S. businesses more and more. Right. Right now, the estimate is 450 billion. And that number is climbing every year in lost productivity and attrition issues. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I've often thought, at least to myself, and I've, I've told some other people this, I'm curious to hear what you think about it. But one of the things I've always thought is that. I think we're pulling wool over our, our eyes sometimes when we think about things like burnout and well-being, or even just this concept of work-life balance in the sense that I don't know anyone who um, can admit that they truly can work all the time with no rest. Like anyone who's like successful, like they're very, I, I, I just, I just if we could have an honest conversation about that with ourselves, like, do we legitimately believe that we can, as individuals perform at our very best by working all the time? And no, yeah. I, I think the answer is, I think the, if we're being truly honest with ourselves, the answer is no. So that that's totally. the first thing. I think this, the second thing is, is that, um, to the point you made, you know, there was this huge shift, particularly, I think in the mid 20, 2010, so maybe 2013 to 2018, just around to your point, let's help people work all the time by making it really easy for them so that they never want to leave, right? And that's when we got the massage parlors and the laundry and the cafeterias and the like, which were beneficial in, in, in some ways. But the idea that just throwing more productivity and more hours at something that was going to lead to better outcomes, I think is another thing that we've been pulling our eyes over. And, you know, time and time again, if you look at all the research studies around productivity and things like it, it does level off after a certain degree. And the reason why is because none of us as humans are capable of performing at our peak at all hours of the day, all days of the week. And so anyway, this is just my long, <laughs> my long rambling take of just um, so much of what I'm interested in what you're doing is mm -hmm. It's it is about well being, but it's really shifting the conversation around. We understand that you want to perform at your best, but being able to perform at your best also means proactively taking care of yourself, and that means taking breaks, and that means totally. resting, right? Yeah, and just to like, yeah, and that or like just just wrap that thought up. I I, I totally agree with you on the sort of like work life balance fallacy, um, you know. Burnout happens in three stages, right? So first, people start a job. Everybody wants to crush it and do really well. People work really hard. They work too hard, probably, like unsustainably hard, right? But that's that's really the incentive there. You're working hard. You're working hard. You're working hard. And eventually, you start feeling the first symptom of burnout, which is exhaustion. And you're super tired, but the work continues. And it continues to pile on, continues to pile on. And this, then you reach the second stage of burnout, which is cynicism. You start resenting that work. You start having negative attitudes toward your work. And then you try to make changes and you try to, you know, delegate and you try to talk to your manager and you do all of these things and things don't really change. And then you reach the third stage of burnout, which is hopelessness. It's when you feel a lack of self-agency where like the work that you're doing and the changes that you're making 
are not going to work. Nothing's ever going to change. And that's when you start and you try to leave for another job. Right. And then you take two weeks off between those jobs and then the whole cycle starts again. And so what we see with some of these people who like think that they can just work all the time is, you know, people have different time spans for which they can kind of hustle until they're starting to reach those burnout stages. But what we see with those folks is that they eventually end up needing some sort of longer period of time off, right? So you have these folks who have been workaholics for 10 years, and then they need a seven year break versus a afternoon off, right? And and that's it's just so clear in the research. Uh, but it's something that I think is, again, uh, a misconception where we think that being a peak performer means working all the time when actually being a peak performer is much like being a professional athlete where like you need to intentionally kind of rest and you need to do some active recovery. And there's actually a ton of positive externalities where getting a little bit of distance from work gives you, allows you to have some perspective taking where you get new ideas and you get sort of like physiologically a little bit, uh, you know, you get to access some new, some new ideas and, and yeah, parts of yourself that, that wouldn't be available to you if you just continued kind of to work in the same way. I think that's a really good point. And I'm glad you brought up the sports analogy. Cause I think that's a, a really good analogy to hold as a mental model. And even when I talk to people about this topic, I always tell them just about how LeBron James tries to aim for 10 hours of sleep a night. And so <laughs> if arguably one of the greatest basketball players to ever play the game of basketball, world champion, greatest players to play is sleeping 10 hours a night. Um, I would listen. I think I'm good at what I do. I'm not the LeBron James <laughs> of what I do, but if it's good enough for him, then it's a good mental model for me to think about, totally. okay, how, how could, how might this actually apply to myself and, and anyone else for that matter? But I, I just, I, I do, I do think that the sports model is a good one because you're right. You're absolutely right. Like they're not running themselves ragged. They're the, particularly the ones who have really embraced, um, sports science and rest and things like they really are optimizing. And one of the ways they optimize is through rest. So I really, totally. I really do, I do love that. Um, one other thing I wanted to ask you about, cause we're on the topic now. So I know you work a lot with leaders in, in terms of, uh, companies, uh, leaders of companies, but I want to also maybe ask about the individual managers and the role that they play, right? So individual manager doesn't always have control over setting the strategy or setting the policies, but they do have some autonomy, right? In terms of they are people leaders, right? And so they have direct reports. And so I'm just curious, uh, as we think about something like well-being, uh, and is it, or even just maybe just drawing on from what you've seen from your customers, what do good managers do when it comes to this? How can they get out and how what, what do they have within their agency and control uh, to really focus on well-being for their individual employees on their teams? Totally. So we love working with managers because we feel like they're kind of, you know, first line in terms of being able to implement uh, some of the, the best practices. And so we have a um, uh, this sort of framework around uh, implementation that really emphasizes the manager because ultimately you as a you know individual contributor or as an employee you're going to take the cues from your manager right like that modeling piece is so important and if your manager is responding to emails at 11 p.m that's your model for success right like if your manager hasn't taken a vacation in three years that's your model of what you is expected of you what whatever they say doesn't matter right like they're taking those informal cues from based on their own behaviors right um so i think one of the main 
sort of <laughs> important things to model is just setting boundaries between work time and non-work time. Uh, and again, that can be really challenging, right? Because there's business needs, like the work needs to get done. And so what really exceptional managers do is they proactively communicate and create visibility across what you know all of their team is doing so that if it's one person's you know sort of like time to take a vacation or to go offline they proactively think through okay what type of work like if there is a fire drill what what is the information that we need what are the tools that we need you know how how are we structuring the time so that you really can just connect and feel like somebody else is going to be able to manage it and one of the positive benefits of that is that your manager starts to get real visibility into what you're doing and like how big your workload actually is and other folks start to get some visibility you know folks on your team start to get visibility into the work that you're doing and so collaboration increases right leslie perla has a, a really she's a, a professor at hbs at harvard business school she has a really cool framework around predictable time off she did a study at bcg uh you know with thousands of employees and what they found was in a when you require people to take one night a week fully, fully, fully off, client satisfaction goes up, employee satisfaction goes up, but there are all these positive benefits because you're required to sort of transfer your work off. And that provides an additional sort of channel for communication that doesn't exist if everybody just continues to manage their own work 100% of the time, right? Um, so we have a sort of three-part framework uh, where we believe that time off uh, should be accessible so we think like you know companies should provide budget and you know stipends or you know access to a, a, a platform like cultivate uh, we think that it should be predictable so it should really be scheduled you know time off needs to be kind of like on a on a predictable proactive cadence and then actually required uh, which comes from yeah uh, dr perlau's research that says if you require people to take time off, that's when you start really to see some of the positive benefits. They won't do it on their own <laughs> if they're, you know, if they're trying to hustle. Yeah, absolutely. And so maybe flipping this around a little bit, how do you model that for yourself? I mean, as the founder of a company that focuses on well-being, how do you manage your own well-being and find ways, you know, particularly as an entrepreneur, where there's a lot of things that are going on at once and there's never a dull moment in the day? Totally. Yeah, I am such a, <laughs> I think one of the reasons I believe so heavily in high quality time off, and I think folks on my team will say the same, is because it was something that we came to and like anecdotally have experienced so vividly in our own extremely demanding jobs, right? So what how I structure it is, I don't think you can take high quality time off, you know, which is sort of like, again, we have a five part framework for describing what that is. Um, you can't do it every day, right? Like it's a pretty high bar, but you can do it every week. You can do it multiple times a week. And so I sort of say to myself, I'm gonna do Thursday night, totally off and you know my partner and i kind of go out and we'll do intentional high quality time off together whether that's a cooking class what you know we're members of moma right so we'll go to moma um we'll do i'll do you know exercise classes i think are really great examples boxing or surf lessons going on a long bike ride uh, and then i also reserve my saturdays always as 
hundred percent off. And so, you know, sometimes that means going camping and like really fully shutting off, but other times it just looks like, you know, I'm going to spend the day with loved ones. I'm just going to try as best as I can not to sort of check my work email, not to check my work Slack. And then of course, making sure that other folks on my team are available, but as much as I can taking one full day of the week to be kind of off offline uh, and doing something that is restorative to me that I, you know, I'm intrinsically interested in that is, you know, sort of this active uh, piece that, that feels like restorative. Thanks for sharing that. And for also trying to model the behaviors that you're hoping to drive, <laughs> not just for your team, but for all of your customers that I'm sure you're trying to uh, inspire as well. I think all of those are, are great suggestions and are things that I've, people can think about for themselves and translating for themselves, how they can, how they can make that happen. So I want to go, I want to go to back to this journey into entrepreneurship and in your journey as an entrepreneur, I would love to know what's, what, what's kind of like the highs and lows in terms of, of building cultivate, what have been some of those moments that have been really great. And then let's also talk a little bit about what's some, some of those moments that maybe were not so great or were not so fun. Yeah. Um, I'll talk about the the sort of hard parts first, uh, just because I think it goes a little, I feel like things have been getting more and more exciting. So chronologically, the highs have been more recent. Uh, the beginning is so hard, right? Like you have an idea, you have a little nugget and it's not developed yet. And as soon as you start sharing it with folks, everybody has critical feedback because of course, like it's not developed yet. And so I think we have had, my, my lowest low was probably very, very early on. I was in an entrepreneurship program and we had made a ton of progress. I won't name what program it was, but <laughs> we were, we had made a ton of progress and it was like, we had become, we were in the finals for, you know, to pitch to investors and the, the panel of judges to determine who was going to be, a, you know, one of the final startups to pitch was all, it was literally all sort of men above age 60, all white men, except for maybe a couple Asian men. And our product at that point, like was really targeted toward a very different demographic. And again, it was pretty early stage, right? And I felt like it was so hard to explain the concept to folks who had just like not been in the workforce, right? Like a lot of these were like retired kind of like investor dudes and had been just sort of like, they're so interested in technical founders. They hadn't really met like many Latina founders. And I just felt like it was really hard to connect. I didn't feel a ton of kind of like mentorship or sponsorship. It was, it was just really hard to, to kind of make our case. We got so much pushback and so much skepticism that anybody would ever use this. And like, just almost like, like real negativity. There was one person particularly who kind of had done a similar startup in his past and he kind of yelled at us. I think he like himself was triggered about his own sort of like failure in the space and kind of like, if I couldn't do it, you can't do it. So that was probably like my biggest low. That's when I was really like, wow, okay, we need to be sure. Or like, we need to have a lot of conviction because people who understand this startup space are very skeptical. Uh, so we pushed through that, which was great. Got a ton of support, you know, later on, but I think that big gap, gap in diversity in startups has been something that we've like continued to grapple with. Like, right. We just don't have a lot of folks in our network. We don't have a lot of folks who are, you know, match our demographics that are excited to kind of like shepherd us through that process. 
Um, and I, I hope it sounds like the startup community is, is focused on changing. I don't know if that's the first <laughs> priority in the startup community, but it definitely seems like it's on folks' radar to, to focus a little bit more on diversity. And when we have, you know, conversations with VCs, we, we always ask, like, what are you doing to, to support diverse founders? Like, what's your take on, on diversity in, in startups? The highs, I would say, probably, again, recency bias, but we were recently featured in Forbes. Uh, the CEO of TaskRabbit, who's one of our customers, uh, wrote about us in an article about burnout in organizations. And that was just amazing. We got so much visibility. We got a ton of inbound from major companies saying, we're interested in your approach. We want to learn more. Uh, that was the first time that we really got inbound, right? We've been hustling to sell <laughs> to different employers, but we have, you know, it's mostly been one directional. And so that kind of visibility, the visibility for our neologism around uh, high quality time off, that was super exciting. Uh, we got a follow up from that in uh, sort of a uh, a spotlight in UC Berkeley news, uh, which also led to a ton more inbound. And so that kind of positive PR, it's like, gosh, you work for over two years to get something off the ground. And then, you know, you got like three sentences in Forbes and, and it's just such a highlight. So, um, yeah. And I would just say like, we've recently grown our team. So getting to have those wins, uh, you know, when we've grown our team a little bit has been, has been really exciting. Uh, and then of course, just like the impact of the work, right? So we, we did our initial pilot, uh, with Box in the summer, uh, of 2021, we had great results, right? 10 X utilization rates of the industry average 46% reduction in, uh, self-reported burnout, um, you know, 85% of the folks in our pilot said they would use this if it was offered by Box as a, as a benefit or a perk. So yeah, I think like that initial pilot was just so validating to say like, hey, people are really interested in this. Of course, there's areas for growth and we're on the right track. That's great. That's super exciting. And as you think about, and we're recording this at the end of 2021, but as you think about next year, 2022, what's ahead for you and Cultivate? Yeah, I mean, we're like deep in strategic <laughs> planning for that, but we're just we're just really hoping to scale. I think ultimately what we want is to have deep impacts on burnout, deep impacts on U.S. work culture. We can't do that at a small scale, right? So we want to grow. We want to reach thousands and thousands of employees across, you know, all the major cities in the U.S. and uh, yeah. So, I mean, we're right now, you know, our main OKR is uh, bookings, right? So how we have a platform that connects employees to high quality time off experiences. We really want to make sure that people are taking that time off and that employers are providing access to that time off in terms of money and time. And so a proxy for that is, you know, how, how much high quality time are people taking? Uh, and our experiences are curated, they're based in research. And so the more that we can get this framework out there, the better. And yeah, I think we have a 20% month on month growth rate for our, that primary OKR, which is our bookings rate. So just really hoping to meet that, you know, for 12 months in a row next year, uh, which would get us to like millions and millions in revenue, thousands and thousands, you know, tens of thousands of customers. Uh, and it would just be a much better platform for our thought leadership in addition to sort of like rubber hits the road impact with real employers and real employees. Yeah, absolutely. That's really great and really exciting. Fingers crossed on that. And one question I did want to ask you about. So right now, whether you want to call it the great resignation, the great reimagination, the great re-whatever, but 
regardless of what you're calling it, people are out there looking for jobs or wanting to figure out if they need to make career moves and career changes of varying degrees. And I presume and kind of hypothesize that one of the levers that they're going to be thinking about is this topic of work-life balance or well-being or just how is this potential employer, whether it's mine right now or a future one, considering this. And I'm just curious if you have any thoughts or advice in particular for those people out there who are going to be considering a career move and how they should be thinking about this or what they should be, what questions should they be asking? But I just, I feel like it's, it's important and I think people feel it's important, but just any guidance around mental models or ideas that they can use to evaluate opportunities. Yeah. I think the way that we look at this, uh, and this is how we sort of coach employers as well, is along the areas of work model, which was developed by Christina Maslach, who I mentioned earlier, there's sort of six factors that impact well-being for employees on sort of the work demand side, right? And so there's six things. The first one is sort of the work itself. And so how how much work is it? <laughs> what is the type of work? Like, is it aligned to your strengths, right? Like, are you going to enjoy the day-to-day -day work? So that's the first question is like really digging in with an employer on like, what is this role? The second factor is control. So how much autonomy and ownership do you really have in your job? Or are you going to be sort of, you know, doing stuff that feels, um, you know, just like you don't have a ton of access to decision-making or resources. So a question you could ask is around decision-making in the organization and like, you know, how, how can you influence decision-making within this role? Third is rewards. So obviously just like compensation and like how well are you paid? And of course, for folks in nonprofits, for example, that might look different what the rewards are like, but making sure that you feel that your uh, work is valued. Uh, the fourth is community. So what are the sources of professional community? Are there employee resource groups? Like what are the ways in which the employer builds that professional community, which is just such an important resource in getting your job done. Fifth is fairness. So what is the perceived quality of the decision-making? And that really means like, you know, if there is a disagreement among teams, what happens, right? Like, is there a mechanism to fix that? Uh, what are the ways that you can kind of escalate, right? Or yeah. And talking to you know folks that are maybe on similar teams, like can you tell me about a time where there was a decision that you that was made that like impacted you that you felt was like fair or unfair, etc. Uh, and then six is values alignment. So like, do you feel aligned to the ultimate purpose of the organization? How motivated are you by the job itself and the organization itself? Looking at key leaders, right? Like, do you you know align with the the sort of C-level suite and are you excited by those folks? I think it's really hard to stay at a job long-term if you don't believe in your manager or the CEO. <laughs> so just double checking that and being like, what are we actually doing with our time and effort? Uh, I think that those would be sort of six areas to, to make sure that you touch on if you're wanting to get a better sense of like, how do these folks uh, think about well-being and, and, and employee support? That's a great framework. And those are six great factors. You know, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, you Selman, the co-founder and CEO of Cultivate. Thank you for joining me today. If people want to learn more about you or about Cultivate, where can they find you? 
check us out on our website, LinkedIn, or Instagram. Uh, you can check us out at cultivate.co. So that's C-U-L-T-I-V-E-I-T.co. And yeah, we're on Instagram and, and LinkedIn as well. Um, yeah, looking forward to connecting. Hi, everyone. LD here. And thank you so much for listening to the MBA Insider Podcast. If you liked what you heard, make sure to head over to Apple Podcasts and to write a review. It will only take 15 seconds. I'd also love to hear what you've been listening to on the podcast and any suggestions you have for how we can improve. Find me on LinkedIn or head over to mbaschooled.com backslash podcast.